This episode contains spoilers for Assassin's Creed 3. This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hello, and welcome to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. My name is Austin, also known as Teacup. And my name is Shelby, also known as SheCup. Join us as we embark on unraveling all of your favorite mysteries from the Assassin's Creed universe. From Assassins to Templars to the mysterious Isu and more, we will seek to uncover it all. So join us, and maybe even take a leap of faith. Hello and welcome to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. I'm Shelby or SheCup, and I am your host or guide on this podcast. Hey, and I am Teacup. I am your lore and game expert, as I have played every game, unlike my co-host. Correction, you've played every game multiple times. Yes. I've only finished Valhalla once, though, so I'll get that. Still. I'm trying not to... I'm, like, most of the way done with one finishing up getting ready to start playing Assassin's Creed 2 and I'm trying to resist the urge to go back and replay Origins well you still have DLC to do in Origins I know but the the main story yeah anyway but anyway yeah what are we um, talking about today so today is a special episode oh really So, so as you may know or may not know last Tuesday uh, Assassin's Creed kicked off their 15-year celebration. They did. Yeah, which, crazy to think that Assassin's Creed Origins and Dragon Age, or no, not Origins, Assassin's Creed 1 and Dragon Age Origins were released the same year. Really? 2007. No. 2007. I thought, oh, I guess Dragon, I guess Assassin's Creed and Mass Effect were released the yeah. same year. That's what yeah. I was thinking. We have too many fandoms. Yes. But that's crazy to think about. 15 years. That's a long, that's half my lifetime. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like how the games have changed. I know that there are a lot of people out there that really hate uh, the new like bloated game style with RPG open world kind of game. But if you really look at how the games have changed from Assassin's Creed 1 to Valhalla. It's, it's really remarkable, um, the progress, I think, that has been made in video gaming in that, in that time period, regardless of, of whatever style of game you personally prefer. Right. And, like, you're playing a re- technically a remastered version of Assassin's Creed 1 or a re-release version of it. Going to be honest, it does not feel that way. Right. So that's not what it originally looked like. And, right. you know, you watched me play Revelation for a little bit, and that is also remastered. So it's crazy to think about the graphical and like mechanic change and shift that has come to that. If you can, but it's also like innovative to the game. Like if you can play Black Flag to Odyssey, yes, there's a significant jump, but like for what it is, Black Flag is amazing from a graphical standpoint. Right. But 
anyway, speaking of Black Flag, today we are doing a kind of hybrid episode. It's can still continuing in our kind of Assassins versus Templar conflict in that we're going to look at the American Revolution. But because the history with the Assassins in the American Revolution centers around a very, very important character in the games, we're going to kind of do a hybrid character deep dive Assassins versus Templar on the assassin Rotan Hekagon, who also known as Connor Kenway. So are you thinking this episode will be a two-part series? It definitely will, because there is a lot of information. Assassin's Creed 3 is a long game, and a lot happens, which makes sense, because, yes, there, there are starting points to the Revolutionary War, but there's stuff that happens before it that leads up before the official war, and there's stuff that happens after it. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's longer than, like, the actual, like, dates of the war are. Well, that's how every war is. Um, yes. No war... In history, when we measure the start date of a war with such and such battle or such and such conflict or event, that's never really the beginning of the war. What is the beginning of the war is the context that leads up to that specific conflict. Right. Right. So anyway, so Connor or Ratan Hagegon is born in 1756. He His parents are Hatham Kenway and Kane. Hito, his mother, who are, those are his parents. And his mother is a member of, and I'm going to try with this one, but it's very complicated. Uh, Kanen Kehaka, which is also more commonly known as the Mohawk tribe. Um, For those of you who are not aware, all, all the tribe names that we often know for the Native American tribes, they have other names in their language. And so where you might hear the Mohawk tribes, this is their actual name, which I give props to Assassin's Creed for using it and figuring it out. Um, But they're a member of the Iroquois Confederation, which if you don't know for history is a confederation of five, it's officially five nations. I believe it's actually more than that. That all kind of came together as like one people and they united, especially around kind of the colonial times to negotiate and kind of be more organized with the European settlers. And important to note, the Iroquois uh, Confederation is also located in the like New England, Northeast section of the United States, what is now known as the United States. Yes, yes. Um, So, Ratan Hagegan, his first few years were spent really happily among living among his people in their village with his mother. He would go out and play hide and seek and other games with his children friend. However, in 1776, no, no, 1760, sorry, the date's in my head, but 1760, so math, he is four years old, four years old. Colonial Templars led by none other than Charles Lee, find him outside his village, uh, and they basically assault him, a four-year-old. And he inquires to who these men are, and Charles Lee arrogantly gives him his name. And he swears that he will find Charles Lee 
and basically like make him pay and the Templar basically brushes off this statement and then like they hit him with the butt of a rifle and knock him out. Do you have thoughts? I always have thoughts about Charles Lee. <laughs> Did you see my notation in the show notes? Yeah, it just says, ugh, for all of you <laughs> listening. I will also share this fun little tidbit. Um, I know we haven't gotten there yet um, to George Washington, but I had a professor in college and I was a history minor. Um, I had a professor in college who would always say when we talked about American revolutionary generals and leaders in the war, she would always say, George Washington could talk you into eating your own socks. He was that gifted of a public speaker. And then she would say that. And then she would always say, and then there's Charles Lee. And then she'd move on. <laughs> um, so we don't think too highly of Charles Lee in this household, I guess. No, I and guess. we'll get to we'll get to why in we might we won't get to why in this episode, but part two. Okay, but but we already we have already established we don't even need to get to why this story not to take us too far off topic but this story about about connor kenway being abused and knocked out and harassed and attacked as a four-year-old kid by agents of charles lee is enough like that in itself would make me hold a vendetta against the man for the rest of eternity and it's not over. I know. I know. This is the very first thing you said about him. And I'm already like, nope, trash. All right. Uh, so when he wakes up, he finds that his village is on fire. And he rushes into the village. He's going all across this, like, burning village when you're playing it in the game. Like, you're having to move around fire. And, like, the way they modeled him, he looks more like an eight or nine-year-old. But to learn that he's four just makes it all ridiculous. But af- after that, he rushes into where like his mother's house is, and it's too late. He finds her underneath a beam that's collapsed. Um, she yells at him to get out and not leave her. Uh, he stubbornly refuses, until, but he's not strong enough to move anything or save her, and he... Ch- He's dragged out by another member of the tribe as the building collapses completely onto his mother and she dies. And it's important to note that after this point, Connor blames the fire on Charles Lee. Um, He just assumes that, which rightly, naturally so, he assumes that they're the ones who set this. And so it sets a fire in him to get vengeance and justice for the death of his mother and a sense of like these men, these white men are coming and trying to take over everything. I want to fight against that tyranny. And you know what? Not only that, I I would imagine that as a child in his mind, once he grows up, he probably looks back on this moment as the moment in his life where everything changed. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people experience that, you know, we often have things in our lives, whether it's the death of a parent or a grandparent or family member or your sibling moving away or, or a fire that burns down your house or, or whatever it may be where everything is different after that happens. And 
we often long for what life was like before the bad thing happened when we, we see it as idyllic. Um, and so if, if I was him, I would absolutely blame Charles Lee for this shift and, and all of it. So I, I would understand, I understand that reaction. And this is a common theme across the assassins who join up with the Brotherhood. They often join up or kind of start their journey after a super traumatic event. We have this with Connor. We have, you know, Ezio joins up after his family is killed. Edward has his own trauma that he deals with. It's a little less direct. Um, and even the opposite with in Rogue, when you have Shea Cormac, like there's a traumatic event, the Lisbon earthquake that moves him over to the Templars. And that's just a really like realistic thing. Oftentimes when we face these extremely traumatic events, they force us to question what we already know about the world. Um, and so that gets us to rethink that and might cause us to drastically change or have a turning point in our life. Uh, it's good storytelling because it's something that almost everyone can relate to, regardless of your background and what's happening with you. So we're fast forwarding a little bit, nine years. So he's now 13. And so around the time, like this is kind of, iffy but like this is like normally like 13 when like puberty starts and all of that that most cultures like that's your entrance into adulthood so nothing is different here that's what happens with Ratahagagon when he goes in there and the clan mother comes and asks to speak with him privately uh, she shows him a piece of Eden though she doesn't call it a piece of Eden and explains that it is this that they're protecting that is the reason why they can't leave their valley so right now there's a rule that they don't venture out beyond the valley because they're protecting this piece of Eden. It's an apple of Eden. And so when she shows it to him, the piece of Eden activates and it takes him on a spirit journey, is what they call it, uh, where the Isu Juno tells him he is needed to help save the world. And if he continues on his current path, that the world will fall to ruin. And she tells him that he needs to seek a certain symbol to understand his path. And that symbol is the assassin A symbol. Whatever could the A mean? I don't know. <laughs> uh, upon regaining consciousness, um, he finds himself at the edge of the valley by a river. As he drew the symbol he had been shown in the sand, the clan mother asked where he saw it. And he explains the spirit journey that he went through. And the clan mother uh, said she understood what he was being asked to do. And she directed him to a homestead that lay east of where they were, closer into kind of what would be like middle of nowhere, Massachusetts, New York, that kind of area. The frontier is what it would have been called, uh, where she claimed to have seen the symbol before. So he crosses the frontier and he arrives at this rundown manor uh, several, several days later. Uh, he's knocked on the door and is greeted by an elderly black man. Uh, and he says, like, when he comes, he's like, I'm here for training. And the man waves him out and shuts the door in his face. So he stays the night in the stables and tries again. The next day meets with the same response. 
naturally, as most video game protagonists are, he's incredibly stubborn. Uh, and so he doesn't give up and he bangs on the manor's back door. He climbs up on the balcony where the man comes out and basically throws him on the ground and says, move on. There's no need to be an assassin. The world has already forgotten us. And so he returns to the stable, uh, angrily calling back that he would not leave until he trained him. And this is like, this is a common storytelling device across different mythologies of the persistently asking the old master to train you to be denied, denied, denied again. And it's not insignificant that this happens three times before something changes. Yeah, that, that's a very common number throughout literature, religion, storytelling, just generally three, three times. Like there's a reason that we, we have a three strikes and you're out rule just in our, our world. Right. And there's, and there's an old uh, rabbinical saying that talks about the number three and it says once is a coincidence, two times is happenstance and th three, but three times, three times is an act of God. And that's kind of where that comes into play there. And so that night after the third attempt, uh, bandits come onto the homestead. They pass by the stable as they discuss their plan to attack, not thinking anyone overheard them. And so Ratan Hakegan, he is woken up by their voices and asks them what they are doing. Naturally, seeing that someone has seen them, the thugs attack him. He's not an unaccomplished fighter, so he's able to fend off most of them, though he's knocked out again. This is a common theme happening with this kid. Uh, and they wake him up and questioning him whether he was working for the owner of the homestead. At that moment, the old man comes, comes out to his rescue, stabbing the bandit leader in the back. Uh, he told Ratan Hagegan to clean up the mess, and then he follows him into the manor so they, they could talk. This man is Achilles Dalpinfort, mentor of the colonial brotherhood. And he takes Con Connor under his wing and teaches him about the assassins and Templars, the history. Uh, he teaches him about his father, his own ancestry. And he shows him like the basement where he has a list of all the colonial Templars. He has assassin robes and a pair of hidden blades. Can I ask a question? Uh-huh. So this man was the man with the house that mm -hmm. he was on. And his name is... Achilles Davenport. Okay, so you said that Achilles taught Connor Rata Hagegon about his father and his parents. Mm -hmm. So Haytham is the dad, mm -hmm. and he so he did not like live in the village and help raise his son. No, so this is a little backstory. Um, Haytham is sent to the colonies to kind of establish a Templar presence in there. And in that process, he not only succeeds in, dis in dismantling the entire Assassin Brotherhood down to where it's just Achilles left with the help of Shea Cormac, Cormac, and he also is sent there to track down a renegade Templar and kill him, basically. Edward Braddock is his name during the seven years uh, 
war. And so he meets Connor's mother in that process and they strike up kind of a very like quick love affair that ends in his conception and they go their separate ways. But Hatham was an assassin before he became a Templar because his father is Edward Kenway and he was raised to be an assassin, but he's manipulated and moved over to the Templars. Right. I knew that. Yeah. So that's how Achilles knows about like Hatham and is keeping tracks of him. And that's fine. So. I had another question, but I forgot. Oh, okay. So, so Hatham is, is he in the colonies at this time? Yes. Okay. He comes into the colonies like before 1756. And he does stay. He just doesn't stay with his son. No, he's like moving around. They're located in Boston is their kind of headquarters. Okay. Okay. I understand. Boston and New York. All right. Let's get back to the content. All right. So Achilles trains uh, Ratan Hakegan for the next few months at the homestead, teaching him all the things that he needs, climbing, though he's already a pretty good climber himself, being the background that he grows up in, uh, how to fall without t- taking a lot of damage, how to fight, how to stay hidden, all the vital skills that you would need to be an assassin in a hope to shorten the gap between uh, him and Hatham. Because Hatham has years of experience, not only as a, as a Templar, but also as an assassin. And so that's what made him so deadly to the Assassin's Brotherhood is because he knew all their tricks. So in March of 1770, so keeping track, he is 14 at this point. Achilles invites Ratan Hagegon to come to Boston with him where he needs to purchase supplies for repairing the manor. Uh, and so Achilles, when they get there, he tells, he tells Ratan Hagegon that he should adopt a name, a different name than his name, so that he could move easily. And he says something that just kind of like breaks your heart. He says, we'll, give you, we'll name you Connor. And people will just think that you're Spanish or Italian. Uh, And both of those are being better than me. And he goes, better to be Spanish or Italian than native or like me. My heart breaks. And Connor in his sweet, you know, teenage self just goes, that's not true. Yeah. Yeah. So he sends Connor on a bunch of lists, uh, a list with supplies he needs to gather. Uh, He passes by. So once he purchases it, he finds Achilles in a crowd that's rioting and yelling at the British soldiers to leave Boston. I think you know what's going to happen, Shelby. I'll let you tell us. (laughs) Uh, Connor returns to Achilles side and they observe the uproar until they spot Hathen Kenway speaking to another man in the crowd. Achilles, worried that the Templars would worsen an already delicate situation, send Connor to discover what Hatham and his associates were planning. Spoiler alert, they did indeed worsen the situation. 
Uh, so Connor, even though he wants to go after his father, and as any 14-year-old kid would want to, be like, okay, I'm going to go after my father. I want to talk to my dad. Uh, he obeys Achilles' instructions and follows the man instead. Connor tailed him up to the rooftops where he's to, able to stop the man from firing a shot in the crowd. However, Charles Lee, who had been standing on the rooftop, had on the opposite side of the street, fired his pistol into the air and caused British soldiers to attack Boston citizens out of startlement. Of course they I, did. I just want to pause here and like, if this was true, like if this came out that Charles Lee started the Boston massacre, I feel like our entire view of like the revolution and history would change. I think that's probably fair. Um, Because we in like American society and, and just like the way we look at ourselves we always think of the revolution as something that like, oh, this was this organic, like spur of the moment from the people, organized resistance and everyone supported it. And it was just like what we were supposed to do. And, and it was, it was the right thing. But half of that is, is, is not even in the realm of reality. Like, First of all, the revolution was extraordinarily controversial. Not everyone supported it. A lot of people wanted the security of, of being under the care of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to strike out on our own. Lots of people felt that way. Right. But even more so, like, we take this folksy view of it where it's like, oh, yeah, they just rose up against those evil guys. But if, if, if we really looked at it a little bit closer, that's not always true. And if this was the situation with Charles Lee, I think that would definitely change uh, that kind of conception. Right. And like from a historical perspective, like the American Revolution kind of already shows the divide between the North, the Northern colonies and the Southern colonies, because primarily the number of loyalists were in the Southern colonies or the Southern states. Um, they existed in there, but there was far more support for the revolution in like New York and Boston and Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island, all these places, whereas there was not as much support for them in South Carolina, North Carolina. Um, right. And that goes back to money. Mm-hmm. And the people who were pushing for the revolution were, were mostly, this is a large generalization, but the people who were pushing for the revolution for, for independence were people who had money, who didn't want to see more of their money taken by the British. The people who were like, no, like my life is okay. Like we just, we should keep things the same are people who are poorer, who didn't have as much money who could be taken by the British. Right. But that's why the war ends in Chesapeake Bay and the Battle of York of Yorktown. And so because it took so much longer to get through the Southern campaign because they didn't have as much support. And it also goes back to like the Southern states economy wasn't real. I mean, it was kind of based on trade with England a little bit, but not to the extent that it was in the northern colonies where they were getting taxed on like tea and other exports like that. Whereas, yeah, sure, they were probably the southern colonies were probably getting taxed on 
a lot of that too, but they were also providing resources to directly to the colonies as well. That's true. And we'd also be remiss if, if we didn't talk about uh, the impact that that slavery and, and the industry mm-hmm. of slavery has on this conversation, too. Right. Yes. So in the confusion, uh, Haytham approaches one of the guards and points out Connor. At this point, he doesn't know who he is. Uh, prompting several troops to pursue him through the city. And later they accuse him of firing the first shot of saying that he was the one who started all this. They accuse Connor of that. Yes. And so Connor does eventually escape Boston and clears his name with the help of none other than Samuel Adams, uh, who helps him walk around and kind of talks about him, about the Sons of Liberty and the freedom. And there's really good conversation where... I love this conversation because he's all talking about freedom and Connor basically just goes, says the man who owns a slave. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then Samuel Adams gets all defensive, but I mean, you already see that, like, this is very early on and important with Connor is that you see very early on his disillusionment with the white settlers and their revolution and their so-called freedom. But Very I, don't early think, on. I don't even think it's disillusionment, though, because to be disillusioned with something is to say that you once were a person who saw that thing with with positivity through, you know, good eyes. Like you looked at it as if it was a good thing. And now you are not. Now you've been disillusioned with that thing. I don't think Connor or Rataha Gagan ever looked at the United States or freedom or the revolution with, uh, you know, a good lens. Like he never saw, yeah, this is a, this is a good thing. Right. Well, and he probably just saw that like being trained as an assassin, he's learned to look at the world and say like the war that I'm fighting is beyond any, you know, squabble between nations or anything like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so after returning to the homestead, Connor, Lee, Connor is mad at Achilles for basically abandoning him. And he, but Achilles calmly remarks that the day of experiments, experience had been more valuable than months of training. And in acknowledgement of his achievement, Achilles finally entrusts Connor with his first set of hidden blades. Isn't that just like some kind of teacher to just be like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I did this. But like experience, like we had a teacher when we were in grad school that used to always say it's a leadership opportunity. Yeah, um, it is annoying, but I'll say that I say that now, too, sometimes. So, right. Yeah. So let's take our break real quick. Sure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. All right. Welcome to the middle of the show. And this is the time where we talk about all things that have to do with the Assassin's Creed lore cast. 
but not necessarily the actual lore of the Assassin's Creed universe. So my first thing that I want to tell you is um, that the biggest way to help us right now is uh, to give us a review online to like and share our show. You can leave us a review with words on Apple. Um, and if you do, we'll read it out on the show. And if you leave us a word, just just uh, ratings um, on Spotify, that also really helps us. Austin, do we have any reviews to read today? We have I think- one, too. Awesome. Why don't you read it for us? All right. This says comes from Hasselhoff, five stars. He says, even the Isu would learn from this podcast. And he says, the cups have done it again, delving into the memories of... The ancestors to bring an amazing show. As a longtime fan of Assassin's Creed, I love it when my favorite game is talked about and this podcast does not disappoint. Austin and Shelby bring their unique take on the lore and make it easy and enjoyable to listen to. Next time you jump in next time you jump into an animus, put this show on and listen to. Thanks, Hasselhoff. Hasselhoff Thanks. is also a listener of our other show, the Dragon Age Lorecast, and left us a review over there. So we are super appreciative for sure. I want to know, Hasselhoff, is there a game that you don't play? Uh, uh, but yes, thank you for the support. And we really appreciate that. Yeah. So um, coming soon, we will be launching a Patreon. So if you want to support us financially, stay tuned uh, for that development. It's not live yet, but it will be soon. Um, also, in addition, you can also join our Discord servers. We have our own Discord server called the, the Cups Podcasting and More server, and that's the home of all of our podcasts. This one, as well as the Dragon Age Lorecast and Teacup's other podcast, the Holocron Histories show, which analyzes and talks about the difference in Star Wars canon versus legend. So all three of those shows uh, have a home at the Cups Podcasting and More server. We also talk about all three of those shows, post a lot of memes, post a lot of pet photos, and just generally have a good time. Or you can also join us on the Robots Radio Discord server. We are members of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. And there are so many awesome shows that are part of this network, both in the Rocket Club and as full members of Robots Radio. There are so many awesome shows that you can find and learn more about. So join us over there as well. And there will be links in our episode description to join both of those Discord servers. Austin, is there anything else that I have forgotten? No, uh, just shouting out the Discord too. Just piggybacking on that. And if you if you feel like I need to stay up to date on all the news that's happening with the podcasting network, Discord server is the place for to, for that. Yeah, the the Discord, especially the Cups Discord, they always hear everything first. Um, so yes. if you if you want to join in on that, make sure you head over there. All right, that's all we got. That's all we got for the mid show. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's get back into it. All right. So sometime after the Boston Massacre, not too long, maybe a couple years or a couple months, uh, Achilles instructs Connor to meet him at the Homestead's dock uh, in order to look something over that he simply called an asset. And it's like, it's a, 
interesting scene there because it's like the typical mentor way of like, he's like, hey, come over here. And Connor in his like youth and teenage years is like, what, what do you want? What is it? And it's just like an asset. Yeah, it's like that whole like, let me be cryptic and make you think about this for three days before I actually tell you the way that meant. It's the ancient or not ancient, but like historical version of your professor sending you an email and being like, come see me on Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, so when he arrives, he sees the remains of a ship in disrepair as well as a small shack overlooking the bay. He and Achilles enter the shack and meet with Robert Faulkner, the first mate of the ship in the harbor, the Aquila. Connor offered to pay for her repairs and Robert gladly agreed to gather a crew for the vessel and restores, restore her sailing capability. So they sail up to Martha's Vineyard and they repair the Aquila and Connor quickly takes to sailing like he's in his blood. Which, which Achilles comments, it is. That's exactly what I was about to say. I was literally like, it is in his blood. Literally. Yeah. And so he talks about, and there's, this is a great scene because this came out before Black Flag. And so there was already plans of like, they knew who Edward Kenway was before the game even came out. Taking a page out of Dragon Age book with that one. Yeah. Well, and like a lot of the Assassin's Creed games, they really rely on these kind of mythological uh, characters that have that surround historical events. For example, in Valhalla, like Eivor is based on an actual historical figure or several historical figures who were kind of bridges between Saxon and the Danish or Norse uh, raiders, I guess is what I'll call them. So like Uhtred? Yeah, like Uhtred. Um, <laughs> Let's get back to uh, the American Revolution, though. Yeah. And so when he finally returns, Connor is berated by Achilles, who accused him as leaving for so long without as much as a goodbye. Uh, Nevertheless, Achilles led Connor down to the manor basement in order to bestow on him the assassin robes. Though Achilles admitted that the order usually had a ceremony for such an occasion, neither he or Connor seemed the type for such things. Instead, after Connor had donned the robes, Achilles simply verbally welcomed him into the Brotherhood of Assassins. And I think that just shows like where the Assassin's Brotherhood is at in the colonial period. Like, you know, when they're in, when you're in the Italian Brotherhood, there's all this pomp and circumstance and ceremony around joining it because they're a well-established organization. And it's a important thing. Whereas like the colonial Brotherhood is very much on like, we're doing what we can to survive. And Mm -hmm. There, we don't have time. We don't have the luxury of pomp and circumstance. Right. We don't have the luxury of a ceremony or like gold plated row, like all this fancy stuff that they, mm-hmm. that Ezio has. Yes. Later that year, uh, Connor's childhood friend, uh, Kane to- Tokan, uh, he visits Connor at the homesteads and brings news that one of the Templars, William Johnson, was attempting to lay claim on their nation's land without their consent. Not surprised. Um, 
Outraged by the thought, rightfully so, Connor immediately decides to seek out Johnson. Though Achilles tries to keep him from acting rashly, Connor argued that he made a promise to protect his people. And there's this big scene where Connor basically takes a hatchet and he buries it into the banister of the like house. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's a symbol of like starting a war. When a war starts in their tribe, they would put a hatchet into the tree and only take it out when the war was over. And then, so it's all dramatic. And then Achilles says, well, could you have just done it in a tree and not the house? <laughs> you know, he has a point. Right. They were in the forest. So a thing. Uh, so Connor quickly goes to Boston where William Johnson operates out of, uh, and he meets up with Samuel Adams who offered to help him in finding Johnson, but only after he helped Adams cripple Johnson's tea exhortation. Which just, this starts a relationship with like Connor's introductory into the revolution is through the Sons of Liberty. Um, which is all the like patriots in the Boston area, really. So here's a question. Mm-hmm. Are there any assassins in England I know we've talked about how the Templars are, they have a stronghold in Britain, but I'm just curious if there are any assassins in England. And if so, like, did they ever like fight for the British? Um, at this point, no, because at the start of the game, Haytham kills the last like a big assassin in England. Okay. And they, there are still assassins in England, but they are in no position to kind of interfere with what's going on in the colonies. The only place, yeah. The only place that they could potentially get assistance is from the West Indies brotherhood. But as you know, the West Indies brotherhood is dealing with the Haitian slave revolt at this time. And they don't have, the resources to send people their way right so i guess i was just curious because like connor is is clearly aligning himself with the american revolutionaries and and not at all the british part of it is that the templars are backing the british at the very right. beginning Right. Um, And I guess I'm thinking about this in terms of like real history, maybe too much because like not all of the natives just like blindly supported the Americans. No, in fact, it was the opposite. Most of them sided sided with the British in that because and part of this is because the British were imposing land restrictions on the colonists they were basically the british were basically honoring the treaties they made with the tribes and keeping the colonial colonists from expanding so a lot of the native tribes saw the british as like we'll fight and help you because you're keeping this expansion at bay right so so that kind of is interesting to me at least because Connor is indigenous like did his tribe support the British like do we know any of this stand by (sighs) okay yeah there's more to that and it doesn't it's not as black and white say as maybe like the Spanish Inquisition was where the Templars were on one side and the assassins were on the other the the problem we're not seeing a lot on both sides 
is because the there is no like the brotherhoods are dismantled like right. Connor is the only assassin operating in the colonies right now well Achilles Achilles is staying back at the manor he's not really fit to do something oh. he's also he's also gravely injured okay sorry I keep getting us off <laughs> all right so back to it um during this assistance Connor meets uh Stefan uh Chapeau that's it's French. That's what I'm going with. Uh, a French taverner and helped him ward off a tax collector who was harassing them. Uh, soon after, Stefan went into a violent rage and caused riots around Boston against the loyalists. After finding the maid overseer of the T's transportation, Connor had Stefan assassinate him, taking him on as an apprentice for the Brotherhood. And there are several, I'm not going to go into them all, but there are several missions throughout the game where Connor kind of takes on these assassin apprentices well yeah i mean he's got to rebuild the order right um but it's in i'll get into something important in a minute okay. or later in the episode so connor then helps stork johnson's tea empire uh through Bo- through the boston tea party um you know he helps them sneak on and defends the sons of liberty as they throw tea out of the harbor throwing a couple cases himself. And he thinks that's the end. He, he doesn't kill William Johnson at this point. And he says, okay, like we're, we crippled his empire. He doesn't have the funds to buy this land anymore. Much to the chagrin of Achilles, who says, now nah, you should have killed him. And turns out Achilles is right because the Templars have unlimited resources, it seems. And in 1774, uh, his friend returns to him and tells him that when William Johnson is attempting to negotiate with the Iroquois t- chiefs at his home, Johnson Hall, uh, though the chiefs would not give up their land and claim that Johnson's efforts to protect them were hollow promises, Johnson decides then to use violence to no- motivate them. Hey, our critique of you is that we don't actually think that we're, you're going to protect us. Okay, well, then I'm going to hurt you. What? Way to prove him right. Way to prove him right. Uh, Connor quickly assassinates Johnson from a, a tree above him. And in his dying word, Johnson claims that he was not after the land for profit, but sought to protect the natives against uh, colonial expansion. Connor rejects this notion and claims that the colonists have no conflict with the Iroquois. Spoiler alert, they did in fact have conflict with the Iroquois. I think this shows like uh, Connor is like 18 at this point. It kind of shows a little bit of like his naivete. His prefrontal cortex is still not developed fully. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I mean, I wouldn't believe William Johnson either because he's a Templar and like he wants the land for whatever reason the Templars want it, which for Connor as an assassin and as a native means exploitation. White people want my land for exploitation. They don't want to protect me. So later that year in 1774, a messenger arrived at the homestead bearing a request for Connor to aid a man named Paul Revere. Connor politely refused the offer, frowning at, on the fact that the Sons of Liberty mistook him as one of their own. However, when Achilles pointed out that the Templar John Pitcairn was mentioned within the letter, the assassin relented and he goes, fine, okay. But again, you see this thing of like Connor is like, I do not want to be part of this revolution. This revolution does not benefit me 
it occasionally benefits the assassin's cause. Right. And that's what's interesting about this is like he's so dedicated to the assassins. And like, I feel like, and I haven't played the game, so I, I fully, so I don't know, but I feel like he very much wants to honor his heritage as an indigenous person, but he does not give a crap about the revolution, even though at times he's aligned with it only because it aligns with his goals. Right. And in the game, you see this, like Connor has a very, like, this is how the world is. This is a very like matter of fact, like I don't, I don't mess around. Like, that's just how I am. That's my personality. He, he does have humor to him and he can like find joy, but he is devoted to the assassins because he sees it as a method to get justice for the death of his mother. And he is intensely devoted to the cause. And I think that he is probably one of the best examples of what it means to be an assassin because that like, he does not care about the leaders of the revolution. He does not care about benefiting them. He does not care uh, whether which one of them is in power. He cares about what's going to affect the people of the colonies, whether that's the indigenous people or the settlers, like the everyday person who, he doesn't care that, you know, Samuel Adams has difficulty doing his big empire. He cares about like Stefan, this tavern owner who can't keep his business open because of the British taxes. And so that's why he's kind of moving to this point of like, I care about the little people. And as I say this, all I'm thinking is like, this is the assassin for Shelby. Yep. hundred percent. I'm like, yeah, this is me. And also it, it very much, if there's anyone out there who also plays Dragon Age, <laughs> it also very much reminds me of Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yes, very different. Ah. So he meets with Paul Revere and he is disappointed that Pitcairn is not present. Uh, however, Revere recruits him to help in writing, warn the inhabit- inhabitants of Lexington and Concord about the British army. So Connor is writing with Paul Revere and his famous, the British are coming with the promise of, and he does this with the promise of locating Pitcairn later. After the ride, Connor joins the Continental Army at Lexington, where a bloody battle ensued. Pitcairn was present at the fight, but Connor chose to help in the defense of the town rather than pursue his true target. And this is why I say that Connor is really an example of what it truly means to be an assassin because he's not going to risk the lives of the people he's trying to protect to get his Templar target. He's always going to defend the everyday person over going after one person. Right. Uh, and so later, uh, Samuel Adams accompanies, or he accompanies Samuel Adams to George Washington induction as commander in chief of the Continental Army. Midway through Washington's speech, Connor heard the voice of Charles Lee, who was sitting behind him, and he immediately stood to confront Lee. Uh, but Samuel quickly intervened, pulling him away and attempting to distract him by introducing him to Washington. So this is happening at happening like, in the Wash- middle. Yeah, while Washington is addressing the Continental Congress and he just like gets up, like Charles Lee stands something and he just like swears and he just goes, Charles Lee, and like turns up and faces him. I'm like, did everyone not see this? No one stopped the speech. No one turned to say, I would be like, oh, what's happening? 
But if only Samuel Adams had let Connor kill Charles Lee at that moment, a lot of problems would have been solved. Right, right, right. Um, and so later, Connor is directed to Bunker Hill, where he forces the forces of Israel Putnam were engaging the British troops of Pitcairn. He actually starts, apparently, and I did not know this, our famous Battle of Bunker Hill does not start at Bunker Hill, and they commented on it. And I, I did not know it that. St- it starts like a couple miles in the other direction, and then yeah. they end up on Bunker Hill. But like the famous whites of their eyes scene doesn't happen at Bunker Hill. No. And so uh, Connor offered to Putnam to help in his disabling of ships that were, they were basically, so in the harbor around where they were, they had British naval forces that were basically shelling down on the colonial army, pinning them down. Connor offers to go and destroy those ships or uh, ships that would help the Continental Army retreat and would help pick drive Pitcairn out of hiding. Whether or not Pitcairn retreats to his camp and Connor crosses basically kind of the no man's land area of the battle and he infiltrates the camp and he moves along the treetops in the same way as he does with William Johnson. He assassinates Pitcairn like off his horse onto the ground. And Pitcairn, as he dies, gives similar justification that he was trying to give a quick British victory to minimize the losses that were happening. Uh, And Connor's, again, not buying it. He's like, you don't care about lives. You care about power. And he takes a letter from his body that gave evidence of an assassination plot on George Washington's life. Interesting. And... That's where we'll end for part one. Oh, wow. On that cliffhanger? Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I do like Connor a lot so far. Yeah, I do. We'll, we'll save kind of like our big thoughts for the end of the next episode. But Connor, he's not everyone's favorite assassin, but he's my favorite assassin. <laughs> okay. I really enjoyed playing as him. I enjoyed his take. Um, and I'll say, say a little bit more, but I think like this take on the American Revolution is like the opposite of what I think about the take on the Salem Witch Trials. Mm-hmm. Like I think the lens in which we see through an indigenous person on the American Revolution is an important one. I agree. I really agree. And that's what I was going to say like at the end of all this. Um, but I think there are times in Assassin's Creed where actually most times in Assassin's Creed, they take liberty with the actual history and there are times they get it really right. And there are times they get it really wrong. And I think that this with Connor is a time they get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting. And I, and I'm very, very pleased with like the respect and authenticity that was given to the native tribes in this game. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are a couple stereotypes. There are a couple whatever that they fall into just because they're human. But it's pretty good. Awesome. Well, um, unless you have anything else to talk about, I think we should wrap it up. Yeah, that's all I got. 
All right. Well, join us next week on the Assassin's Creed Lorecast for part two. Thanks for listening to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. You can find us on Twitter at Assassin's Creed Lorecast, or you could talk to us on Discord in the Robots Radio Discord or our personal Discord server. Both links found in this episode's descriptions. Thank you for listening, and always stay to the shadows to serve the light, Assassins. Hi, welcome to Three Count Thoughts. Let me introduce the crew real quick. Hi, I'm Maverick Stone. I'm Rummer. And I'm Jaxus. Join us as we talk all things wrestling. Each week, we'll take a topic from the wrestling world, knock it around a bit, and then go over the week in wrestling from a strictly fan perspective. We can be found on all major podcast catchers. We can also be found at Three Count Thoughts on both YouTube and Twitter. Or you can send us an email using 3CountThoughts at gmail.com. Okay, are you ready? Ring the bell.